Welcome to the Investment Turnaround. In this podcast series, Dr. Mariana Bosazan interviews world-renowned investors, scientists, and other personalities who share their solutions toward the sustainable transformation of our financial systems. John Fullerton walked away from his successful Wall Street career to become an unconventional economist, a committed impact investor, author, and integral philosopher. He is the architect of regenerative economics and founded the Capital Institute to help consciousness grow from modern age thinking to integral age thinking. John, welcome to the Club of Rome Rethinking Finance Hub. The purpose of this high-level consultation uh, is to take a transdisciplinary approach toward changing finance and financing change in the post-COVID era. And uh, in order to go beyond the five to 10 minutes interventions where, you know, some of the brilliant pe- most brilliant people in the world you know, have to fire their ideas, we decided to take, to go deeper and give you and others the opportunity to really take time to present the depth of their, of your thinking and dig deeper into what should be done in order to take advantage of the amazing opportunity that we have today uh, to shift existing systems. So the first question that I would like to ask you is, from your perspective, what can be done to jumpstart the economy in the post-COVID world? Mm. Well, first, it's great to be with you, Marianne, and uh, thank you for taking on this uh, important task. And and, uh, it's a privilege to be part of this really important conversation. Um, You know, uh, to answer that first question, uh, I've been studying this idea of modern monetary theory for several years now and have been able to to speak with several of the, the leaders in that field. And um, for those who are not familiar with it, it's essentially the idea that governments that have their own domestic currencies uh, can use them to stimulate demand much more than they realize because we are living in this false narrative that governments are just like households and governments can't issue too much debt or they'll go bankrupt when in fact, the US government being the best example because it's the global reserve currency uh, can issue as many dollars as it wants because if it needs to pay back debt in dollars, it can always issue more dollars. And what, what, what made me, and of course it's counter to everything we believe is true, which is that it's irresponsible and reckless and we need to manage our fiscal uh, house. But um, if, you, if you dive in and study it, you can learn that there's this accounting identity where the public sector and the private sector are in fact equally and offsetting each other. And the, the private sector generally moves toward a surplus, just like you and I want to have savings, we want to have savings for retirement, and we can't go into deficit indefinitely because ultimately uh, there, the, the, there comes time to pay the piper and the bank will come and take our house. And, and, and what the epiphany for me was that if that is true and that the private sector needs to always be moving at least in the long term toward surplus, it means that the public sector has to be moving into a growing deficit. It's an accounting identity. And, uh, and of course, if you extrapolate over a long period of time in, an, in a generally growing economy, that means the public sector deficit is going to grow indefinitely into the future. So this whole notion of we need to balance the budget is wrong. And the only question is, what's our degrees of freedom for how much we can use the public sector uh, to actually stimulate the economy? So it's a long way of saying that in a time like this crisis, um, there's no question in my mind that we need to utilize the public sector fiscal um, uh, capacity in, in an unprecedented way, which of course is already happening. 
So, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm running on a little bit here, but the, the point is that at a, at a crisis like we're in now, really unprecedented in all of our lifetimes, uh, we need to understand that the, particularly the major central banks of the world are the critical tool we need to use. And there's really no alternative. And um, so we need to understand what mon modern monetary theory tells us and utilize this capacity the way the central bank leaders of the world now understand. So what would you tell, let's say, the EU Commission, which in my view is taking a lead on transforming economy toward a greener economy. If you had access to Ursula um, von der Leyen and her commissioners, what recommendations would you make them? What kind of, what exactly should happen for one? What monetary theory should they adopt? And the other, what economic system, you're an expert in, uh, in yourself in this, what economic system is more conducive to the implementation of a Green Deal uh, mm. than uh, today? Well, you know, the, the European context is complicated because uh, it is actually many countries who have given up their sovereign currencies. So uh, the challenge of the European Central Bank acting on behalf of the European community is a unique challenge in the, in the world. Uh, and, and that's a, a probably a long conversation and a rabbit hole we don't want to go down. So if, if we can assume for a moment that the European Central Bank can behave as a central bank for the European Union, uh, which, is, which is not a trivial assumption, but let's assume it can and will for a moment. Um, I guess I would, I would start with, um, you know, my general belief and, and framework is this idea that we're calling regenerative economics. And the, the, the simple idea of that is that uh, the hu human beings are living systems. We're not having this conversation unless our bodies are literally regenerating as we sit here. Uh, if we stop regenerating, we move into equilibrium, which means we're dead, we turn into dust. So we live in far from equilibrium, we don't live in equilibrium, which is the basis of conventional economic thinking. If humans are living systems, then I posit that the human economy is a living system itself. And if it is a living system, then logic would suggest it needs, if it's meant to be sustainable over a long period of time, it would follow the same patterns and principles of other living systems that have sustained themselves over long periods of time. What's remarkable is that those living systems principles are remarkably aligned with many of the wisdom traditions, particularly indigenous wisdom that has stood the test of time. So for me, it's, it's actually a quite simple proposition that if we wanna get smart about how to organize and design our economies, the answer lies in nature, the answer lies in living systems. And uh, I've laid out a framework for this in a paper I called Regenerative Capitalism. I use the word capitalism loosely because I, I, it's a reference to the multiple capitals. But, um, but the first step in shifting to a regenerative economy is to get clear on what the qualities or the principles or the patterns of living systems actually are. And, and I talk about eight principles uh, those aren't the right answers. Those are just my best way of articulating them. The key is to get clear on living systems principles and use those as a guide to our economic policy and changes that we need to make. So yes, I would encourage the European Commission to embrace what we generally refer to as a Green New Deal that is certainly in alignment with how living systems principles will, will guide us. Uh, but there'll be many other clues that will, will surface out of using living systems principles as a guide that don't generally um, get discussed in the conventional conversation about uh, Green New Deal. So the EU Commission example was just an example um, uh, for an organization that would theoretically be open to recommendations of this kind. So would you like to take us through the eight tenets of or eight principles of uh, regener regenerative economics or sure. capitalism? If, you, if you'd like, um, uh, it'll take, it, it, it may take longer than you want. Maybe Please. I'll just go through a couple of them. Does that make sense? 
Um, well, we do want to gather those ideas. This is the, uh, if you can afford the time, if you okay, uh, sure. have it, yeah, sure. please take us through all tenants. And uh, because in the next round, we would like to, to gather in a larger group and come up with, um, with a recommendation or various recommendations as to what is it that would, what are the most sustainable ways of moving forward? No one really is in possession of truth. We can only, mm -hmm. we're dabblers if you so wish, but right now this is the brightest and the most advanced ideas that uh, are out there. So please go ahead. Okay, I will, um, I'll pull up a picture which will help guide the conversation. Um, it'll just take me a quick second here. Yeah, and I, I, I'd be happy to uh, share the screen so you can share that if you want. Um, do you want to, or I can yeah, do it yeah. from here, I think, no? no well, you, you would have to do it. I hope yeah. you can. I think I can do that. Um, bear with me one second. Uh, here we go, share screen. There we go. Can you see that? Yeah. Um, yeah I'll make it bigger. Is that nice and big? It was better before. Oh, <laughs> uh, that better? Yeah, if you go into the show mode, um, you know, just, um, yeah, just run the application, exactly. Yeah, the PowerPoint presentation, yeah. Yeah, but I, if I, I put it on full screen before and it, you said it wasn't good. Oh, maybe it was, um, huh. That's not good? Okay, I don't know what the uh, what is being recorded, to be honest, but um, let's let's do that. Yeah, should be okay. Okay, so um, the 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 eight principles of a regenerative economy that I laid out in my 2015 paper uh, are as follows. The, the first one is this idea of uh, in right relationship, meaning that um, uh, all of the critical components of an economy need to be in symbiotic relationship with each other, win-win relationships, the way, um, uh, the way different um, uh, 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 animals and ecosystems in nature are in right relationship. And it, it begins really about, you know, at, at the very macro level, the relationship between the planet and the sun is just right or we wouldn't be alive. And it works all the way down to the cellular level where at a cellular level, our bodies, our cells are in right relationship with each other or we get sick. And, and, and one idea, just one example of how to use this in the context of our modern economics and the challenges we face in our, in our current um, you know, extractive capitalist system that I like to use is that um, the whole field of finance or sustainable finance revolves around uh, or, or is largely um, built around this idea of environmental, social and governance uh, factors, ESG. And if we, if we only had more transparent information about these ESG um, uh, variables, then markets could do their job, investors would have better understanding and value companies differently. But that, that ignores the fundamental problem which is that through the efficiency of capital markets, we've severed the relationship between real and investors, uh, like pension funds, for example, and, and big public enterprises. And in fact, most of the secondary trading in public securities is now done in nanoseconds or months or even you know, you know, years. Uh, but the relationship between the end investors and the enterprise uh, is really not a, a right relationship. It's really a transactional relationship. And much of the capital markets is really turned into a speculative casino. And so all of the ESG in the world isn't gonna solve that fundamental breach of a principle, which is the relationship between one of the most important relationships in a, in a private economy is the relationship between the uh, you know, owners and, and their enterprise. So that's one uh, example of, of a problem that, that the principles highlight that without the principles we don't see. Another principle I talk about is, uh, I call it, uh, we need to view wealth holistically. Uh, money is not equal wealth. And, and there's lots of work that, that's been done around the multiple capitals uh, beyond financial capital. For example, 
relational capitals, um, uh, natural capital, uh, human capital, um, even even spiritual capital, uh, and and that you know for a human economy to be healthy, we need to have a much more complex understanding of wealth than simply net present value of money. Um, the next one is what I call innovative, adoptive, and responsive. Uh, all living systems uh, are, must innovate and must adapt and must respond to change. We're seeing right now the the um, the urgency of adapting to uh, the, the changes imposed by the COVID uh, pandemic uh, and innovation, entrepreneurship is really at the heart of um, a healthy human economy. And so this principle is actually well understood in conventional thinking because of our general recognition of the importance of, of innovation and, and entrepreneurship. Uh, the next one I call uh, empowered participation. The idea here is that all parts of the system need to be empowered to participate in the system. So this is an interesting way to think about the inclusion or the, um, uh, the inequality issue. Um, I would argue it's not just a moral issue, although it certainly is a moral issue, the, the grotesque inequality in our current economic system, but it's also a fundamental systemic health issue. If my feet are not empowered to participate in the circulation of oxygen in my body, not only is that bad for my feet, it's terrible for my feet, but it's also bad for the health of my whole system, my whole body. Because if I don't, if I can't uh, use my feet, if I don't have feet, uh, oxygen's not circulating there, I can't run, I can't walk, and that will make me unhealthy and, and not um, empowered to, to fulfill my potential as a human being. So the, the extension here to human economies is that uh, it's not just a moral imperative to deal with this inequality, but the health of the whole system is suffering because you know, a, a vast uh, share of, of, the, uh, of, the, of, of humanity is not actually actively participating and contributing to the health of the whole. The next principle I talk about is honors community in place. Uh, living systems happen in place. Um, the place of, you know, the East Coast of the United States is fundamentally a very different place than, for example, the Alps and the economies uh, of the Northeast United States where I live are going to be affected and, 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 um, uh, and, and uh, not only affected, but, but uh, driven by the realities of these geologic realities. Um, place is also where human culture and geological facts in, intersect. And so it's just, it's sort of intuitive that different places should have different economies influenced by the, the local cultures and as well as the geologic realities of these places. This, this sort of validates the move toward more place-based local economies. We like to uh, think about bioregions as the scale, the appropriate scale to imagine economies in as opposed to the unit of analysis being a nation state or the unit of analysis being a corporation. Imagine if we organize our economies around bioregions, we'd have a very different way of thinking about economy. Uh, the next one is what in, in living system science is called the edge effect. Um, I call it the edge effect abundance. And this is, uh, there's, there's massive diversity where different systems uh, intersect with each other. For example, where a river meets an ocean that's where diversity is greatest. That's where life happens. That's when, where danger exists. And that's where innovation happens. And so when we think about our human economy, the move toward the kind of monoculture of great big giant corporations uh, scaling up the, you know, for example, a Walmart that scales up its stores and footprint in a monoculture across the country and across the world is the opposite of uh, investing in the diversity at the edges of different systems. Um, it may be more efficient, but it's certainly less resilient to have a, um, uh, a monolith uh, business model. And, um, uh, and the edge effect is what exists in living systems and we can apply that to our human economy as well. And there's all kinds of opportunities that arise when we work across edges that are naturally not uh, thought of as we as we think about an economy organized by industry. Um, two more to go. Uh, the next one is what I call robust circulation. 
this is the idea of a metabolism. Any living system, by definition, has to have a healthy metabolism. And this is where climate change comes in. Uh, climate change is actually not the problem. Climate change is a symptom of broken uh, uh, healthy cir circulatory flow, the carbon cycle being out of balance with, um, with what, uh, what is required. So for like any living system, uh, robust circulation first requires healthy inputs. So for example, the policy, public policy of austerity when an economy is already weak is in direct conflict with the essential need of robust circulation. And obviously it's not gonna work and it doesn't work. Um, in addition to that, there needs to be circulation throughout the system, just like our arteries move blood throughout uh, our system. There's large arteries, medium-sized veins, and lots of small capillaries to move oxygen throughout our body. Similarly, we would wanna see a similar fractal structure, structure in any economic system and financial system to move vital nutrients, whether it's money or materials or information throughout the system in a healthy way. And then finally, getting to climate change um, and, the, and the, uh, the CO2 problem, any uh, healthy metabolism ensures that it doesn't um, uh, deposit wastes into its own home in such a way that undermines the health of its home. So by pumping carbon dioxide into the atmosphere and destroying our ability to sequester carbon because of our industrial agriculture system, we're ensuring that we're wasting our, we're putting uh, waste in our nest and just undermining our health in the process. But the key is that the principle is robust circulation. The principle is not CO2 emissions. And then finally, the last uh, principle that I talk about in the paper is called uh, Seek's Balance. Uh, this applies to many different things from a balance of the masculine and the feminine to a balance of efficiency and resiliency. It turns out in living systems, um, they actually don't optimize efficiency the way our conventional economics would suggest. They actually find what is called a window of vitality, and this is based on uh, empirical science. This is not anyone's opinion. They find this window of vitality that balances efficiency and resiliency. And so we're learning again from the COVID crisis what happens when we have a private sector driven economy that always is looking to optimize efficiency, we're left without enough ventilators, we're left enough without enough hospital capacity. And, um, and, and it's the same lesson we learned in the financial crisis a decade ago, where we had way too much quote unquote efficiency in the pursuit of return on capital and nowhere near enough resiliency in the financial system. And fortunately, we've taken important steps to resolve that in particular by increasing the capital requirements uh, of the banking sector. So that's a whirlwind tour of eight principles. I hope uh, that made some sense. Absolutely. Yeah, you could now um, go back to yeah. Sharon looking at each other. Yeah, so my question is, uh, I have several questions, yes, and thank you very much. It was very comprehensive. What is the measurement criteria? when we go to metrics, how do, I mean, we can only achieve what you, what we measure right now. We measure for profit only, as you all already mentioned, how do you see these ideas, these eight principles or how many being adopted and mm. by existing financial systems and how can we change the, uh, the metrics, the measurements for success in order to deliver? Mm. Well, that's a great question. I, I don't have a, I wish I had a simple and complete answer. I would say that is a lot of work to be done. Um, uh, there's a, a uh, we have some colleagues at an organization called Blue Marble. Uh, they do evaluation work. And again, the, the, the first key is to understand that any evaluation or metric system needs to be holistic as opposed to reductionistic. And Blue Marble has a very, holistic approach to it and, and takes a look literally again at a biosystem or a, a, a bioregional scale to understand how these measurements interact with each other. So um, I, don't, I, I can't really respond, uh, you know, in, in a concrete way other than to say a couple things. Um, one, the hope that the imperative that it be holistic. Uh, two, you know, I like to use the analogy of um, uh, when you go to the doctor's office and you're trying to understand your own health. So you're a regenerative system 
You go to a doctor, what do they measure? Well, uh, they don't measure outcomes. They don't say, okay, uh, why don't you go and run a hundred meter dash and let me measure how fast you run and then I'll know how healthy you are based on how fast you run. They do, a doctor will do something like measure your heart rate or measure blood pressure or take um, uh, you know, your a blood sample and measure different um, uh, nutrients and, and uh, whatnot in your blood system. So these are indicators of health um, as opposed to outcomes that we measure. And a lot of the measurement conversation we have, whether it's alternative to GDP or impact investing metrics, they're, they're all the outcomes we desire, which tell us whether we're making progress. So they're important, but they're not the indicators, they're not the forward-looking indicators of uh, regenerative vitality, I would suggest. So for example, take one of the principles in right relationship. I have this idea that um, if we could get the data and measure tra economic transactions and give them a rating, you know, a plus one if they were in right relationship where there was a symbiotic win-win outcome and a zero if it's, in, if it's unclear and a negative one if they were clearly extractive. Uh, imagine if we could capture that data on all the transactions in an economy or in a local economy we would have a, a really valuable metric to measure A, how, how much alignment with that principle it is, and B, over time, whether it's moving more into alignment with that principle. And, and that will tell us, just, just conceptualizing such a measure tells us something really important about the financial system. Because we know without measuring it that 99% of the stock market transactions uh, are speculative in nature. And speculation implies one winner and one loser. Now, of course, it's not that simple. There is value in market making and liquidity. I get all that. But by and large, I don't think anyone who's a student of the public capital markets would argue or debate whether or not the capital markets have become predominantly a speculative activity. And speculation is in not in alignment with right relationship. So that leads directly to a policy implication, which is that if we want a healthier capital market, it should be less speculative, not because I think speculation is bad, but because excess, excess speculation violates one of the core principles of healthy living systems. Turns out Keynes knew this and, and wrote about it uh, a long time ago, um, but, um, but we now have sort of an empirical reason to uh, to make that argument. And I could go through each of those eight principles and come up with um, uh, measurements that would, that would assess how much in alignment with the principles they are. And that's the direction I think the measurement work needs to move, which isn't to say that measuring carbon emissions is not important. It is important. Um, but what we really need to measure is whether we're moving toward a more um, healthy uh, circulation healthy metabolism uh, in an economy. And, and there's lots of things we can do to measure that beyond just carbon emissions. Yes, and so the next step would be now that we have identified the theory and what should be done, how can we move toward um, policy and law? How can we ensure that we're being heard and that policy and the legislation are being put in place in order to implement those? So from your perspective, what should be, you know, the short, medium and long-term interventions that uh, our regulators, political government and so on and, and legislation uh, should mm. do? Well, you know, I, again, everything for me starts with getting this new narrative that we, that the economy is a living system into the, into the consciousness of the public. Um, uh, we, we, we live, you know, we live in a, in a world where the political left and the political right argue with each other about how best to stimulate, in a sense, a mechanistic approach to growing this thing we call the economy. And of course, an exponentially growing economy indefinitely into the future, uh, that itself is a metabolism of material throughput, energy and matter is in conflict with the laws of physics. Obviously the Club of Rome figured that out uh, a long time ago with the uh, 
the critical P, uh, work of limits to growth, but the world has not woken up to that idea yet. And so the most important thing to moving a, what I would call intelligent policy agenda to the forefront is to change this narrative about what the human economy is and to, and to reach broad-based uh, uh, buy-in into the idea that we need to understand it as a living system and then we can argue and fight about how best to uh, implement policies to steer it in alignment with the design principles and qualities of living systems. And, and I actually hope for the day that the left and the right are arguing with each other about the best policies to move us toward regenerative potential, as opposed to the best policies to drive us toward economic growth or, or undifferentiated economic growth. And where that growth occurs, uh, is really critical. Obviously, um, less developed uh, economies are going to need capacity to grow in order to meet their basic needs, whereas well-developed economies are going to need to realize uh, potential through much many different means. But until there's an agreement that, that we are a living system and that we are embedded in a living system called planet Earth, then the policy arguments will kind of fall on deaf ears because there isn't the fundamental understanding of what the goal is of the system. And, you know, I, I mean, Kate Roberts' donut is a beautiful, simplistic visual of the goal, uh, particularly the planetary boundaries. Those are scientific. I mean, the science can debate a little bit around them, but, but there is a physical reality of planetary boundaries. I actually think we sometimes do ourselves a disservice to impose the social floors, because social floors, um, there are different value systems that would come, you know, we're not all going to agree on what the social floors would be. One person may think that, you know, no human being should be living uh, on less than $100 a day. Another person may say no human being should live on less than $50 a day. Um, but but there are certain things that we can all agree on and, um, and, and the planetary boundaries are kind of the non-negotiable physical uh, realities. So um, uh, any rate, I, you know, it's a long answer to your, your question, but I, I, do, uh, I do have laid out in my, in my finance paper, what I think are kind of the 10 key policy implications of, of, a, of, of adapting this um, uh, regenerative paradigm and and seeing what it says for our financial system. So there are 10, 10 policies that are specifically designed to transform the financial system into alignment with being in service of a regenerative economy. So in the next uh, iteration of this um, high-level consultation, we'll go in deeper into this. Can you give us like the top three policy decisions that would have to occur? Sure. Sure, I do, I'm trying to do it my, by memory. I think the, the, um, uh, the first one that I, I talk about is, is just as I was referring to earlier, reduce speculation. Um, I've been a long proponent of a transaction, um, uh, uh, financial transaction tax. That doesn't solve the problem, but it, it, uh, it's, it does, goes a very meaningful way to addressing that. I think a, a, a properly designed financial transaction tax would probably reduce the trading volumes in public stock markets in half, and that would scare a lot of people. Um, but I would argue that would be a much that would make that that would that would do many things that would move the the financial system or the stock market, public capital markets in a, in a healthier direction. Um, and the second one on my list is is a a massive reduction in leverage. Uh, if you think about financial leverage. It's done in the pursuit of efficiency, efficiency in that case of the return on financial capital. And if you accept the principle of imbalance and what I described earlier as the, the window of vitality between efficiency and resiliency, if you look at the data, you actually see that it's the window of vitality is actually skewed toward resiliency, meaning resilience, meaning it's not the balance point is not in the middle of the two. It's actually skewed toward resiliency. Obviously, the COVID crisis puts this right in our face. If we don't understand the importance of resiliency now, you know, we, shame on us. And so for the financial system and therefore the economy to be, um, to move from this hyper-efficiency objective, which is 
you know, driving our decisions on global supply chains. It's driving our decisions on capitalization of companies, capitalization of banks, the leverage of um, uh, the entire leverage buyout industry uh, is predicated on subsidizing debt. So not only, so the first thing we should do is take away the subsidies to debt, uh, the interest deduction of, of um, the, the, the tax deduction of interest is, is in complete conflict with a desire to move toward a more resilient, less leveraged economy. Uh, but I, I would also want to impose penalties on businesses that take on excess leverage. And we need to argue about what excess leverage means and it's gonna be different for different industries. That's gonna be complicated. But we should, we should have carrots and sticks that move business enterprise toward a less efficient by design, more resilient by design uh, capital structure. And that would mean way less leverage and that would mean way less shocks to the system when something like COVID happens. Um, the, uh, the third one, I'm trying to remember, it's been a while since I've read, read, the, uh, read the paper, but I, you know, it, I, I'll just make a, a general comment. It, it, it's, um, uh, it relates to the public sector. The, the, thing, the thing that um, we misunderstand is we pretend that there's such a thing as a private sector in finance. There is no private sector in finance uh, separate from the public sector. And again, the financial crisis drew that, you know, make, drew that lesson home. The current uh, economic crisis drives that lesson home. Were it not for the public sector, there would be no private sector of finance. And just when, when things are going well, that doesn't mean that now there's a private sector of finance. There's always this underlying um, you know, um, uh, security blanket that is the public sector. And so I think we need to think about the regulatory response, uh, the public policy framework, understanding that finance is inherently a public activity. And there's no reason why we allow uh, uh, individuals and firms to extract this public um, um, uh, uh, support system and extract value out of it for their own personal gains in the way we do, any more than we would think it's acceptable to allow a utility industry executive to take home $100 million in stock option compensation and bonuses, when in fact their entire industry is predicated on a, a public service that is underwritten by, um, uh, by the public sector. So uh, rethinking this line between the public and private sector, I think is fundamental to, to reimagining a financial system that, that works. The, the, other the other policies they go into um, rethinking tax, uh, taxes, rethinking uh, fiscal investments, um, uh, fiscal priorities, um, uh, uh, experimenting with modern monetary theory, as I mentioned earlier. And the one that um, maybe I'll throw out to be provocative, I actually have written about this. You know, if there's limits to growth, which those of us in the Club of Rome have signed up for that idea, um, not that I'm defending GNP, but let's remember what GNP uh, is. GNP equals consumption, which is the majority of the economy, um, plus investment, plus government spending, and plus net exports. So if there's limits to growth, that means there's also limits to investment and limits to consumption and limits to government spending. Um, and, and from a financial point of view, let's think about the limits to investment. Every capital investment in the real economy uses up footprint. And so if we're already outside the footprint, take climate change, for example, we're at 410 parts per million or whatever, we need to be at 350. You know, every time someone decides to tear down a skyscraper and put up a taller one, uh, which is happening all over the world, they're using up valuable footprint because there's an embedded energy in that initiative. If, if we had lots of footprint left, that's okay. But we now live in a world of finite, boundaries. And so we actually need to have some public policy oversight and intervention in our capital investment decisions. Think of how crazy and, and radical that is. But there's no possible way 
uh, around it. And in fact, Peter Victor has done some interesting work recently uh, where he's, his, he's written a paper that, that gets to this question of, you know, if we're gonna do just the energy transition we need, we're probably gonna use up all of our footprint just on that, which means we need to curtail consumption and curtail non-critical investment to create the room to do the energy transition. And yet, and yet no one in public policy is even thinking about that kind of a challenge at this point. So the last point in my paper recommends a capital investment board, uh, which it would be a body that would actually review capital invest, large capital investments, not small ones, just the biggest ones, um, and assess whether it was uh, in alignment with, you know, as you said, as we started, the objectives of, say, a Green New Deal. Wow, wonderful. That's the, right along. That's exactly what I wanted to hear. <laughs> so what you just said presupposes or requires a mind shift. Mm -hmm. Can you? That's why I think the narrative is so key. Because yeah. I, you know, imagine you and I walking into, you know, pick your government official of choice and arguing we need a capital investment review board. <laughs> it ain't happened. <laughs> Not gonna happen. So we need the narrative first. Okay. So, okay. Um, and how do we create that narrative that is short and in line with the short attention span yeah. of the thinking well, in politics? If you and I knew the answer to that, we would, uh, we would have done it 10 years ago, I suppose. Um, you know, I, I, I mean, that's the, that's the, that's the life civilization, that's the human civilization question of the moment. And, um, you know, I think one, one challenge is that we, you know, we, we in the kind of new economy, regenerative economy, whatever you want to call it, domain are not the natural storytellers. Um, and unfortunately, the natural storytellers are invested in the marketing departments of multinational corporations and they're, they're in Hollywood. And so probably the answer to the question is we need to capture the imagination and, and, and skills of, um, of, the, of the, the genius storytellers of society. Um, and maybe it's not a story, maybe it's a game. You know, I've, I've envisioned an interactive game that would, would allow people to see the regenerative economy uh, emergent in, in the real world. Because there's tons of examples of regenerative initiatives. They're just invisible to the mainstream. So imagine if you had a game where they all became visible and then you could add to them. Uh, but, but that's not my skill set. And um, uh, I, think, I think collectively we need to figure out how to attract the genius storytellers, you know, that imagine if we could bring, I don't know, the top 10 acclaimed storytellers of our societies into a room and, and lock them up for a week until we explain to them what we understand about economies and living systems and then challenge them to create the ultimate new narrative of our age, the new story. Um, people have been talking about this for a long time. Thomas Berry said, um, you know, decades ago, we're in trouble because the old story no longer works and we lack a new story. So a lot of people are working on this challenge, but it's, it's, um, it's not easy to, it's not easy for humans to change paradigms. Um, just as Dana Meadows pointed out in her famous leverage points paper. Right. So, but we do have pressure and COVID-19 has increased that pressure and, um, we're now, as we can see, we, we see the science fighting with the, with belief systems. If, if we had, if the sky was the, the, there was no limit or the sky was the limit, who, with whom should we partner? Mm. Who are the key people that we should be bringing to the table in order to bring that, make that transition? Well, you, I mean, first you, you make a great point, which is that um, the pressure is rising and um, systems change in response to pressure and systems don't change without pressure. Um, uh, one, of my, one of my teachers, Sally Gorner, always liked to say, you put a pot of water on the stove and turn up the heat, uh, eventually it'll boil. And without the heat, it doesn't change. It's no different for human economies. So 
between the financial crisis, between 9-11, the financial crisis, um, all of the climate change crises that are rolling out literally on a daily basis, and now this COVID crisis, uh, the pressure is rising, the inequality crisis, the, uh, you know, we could go on and on. Um, that's the most hopeful, as, as hard as that all is, it's the only reason I'm confident the system will change because the pressure is rising. Um, you know, it, in terms of who, who we need in the room, um, you know, um, you know, I, I, I go to um, uh, Cameron, the filmmaker. I mean, we need a we need a Cameron, we need a uh, Spielberg, we need we need whoever it is that um, has has had a shift in consciousness and gets this, and has the modern storytelling genius capability. Uh, we need those people in the room, and probably um, uh, probably it's it should be. A, a woman, because this new story is is a feminine story, not a masculine, um, you know, domineering story. So it's probably a woman, or a feminine energy. I'd rather uh, or a like to energy. say, because yeah. it's not about men or women. Absolutely we have right. these energies in both of us, and it's just you know what needs to come to the forefront right now is probably the feminine energy Absolutely. in both of us. So very I, well said. Very well said. And uh, I know we, uh, you've been very generous with your time. We only have a few minutes left. And uh, I, as you know, I'm a computer scientist and AI uh, uh, expert. And uh, I just love technology. And the question to you, how do you see the role uh, exponentially growing technologies and entrepreneurship mm. play a role in this transition yeah, in the future? Boy. That's a key question. Um, I'm not an expert in technology. In fact, um, people that know me would would say that I'm a technology problem magnet. Um, so, uh, but but in all seriousness, I, I think technology uh, has so many has a, such a vital role to play, and yet our history with technology, and I'll speak for myself as a former derivative specialist. You know, the derivatives technology was the most innovative thing to happen in finance in a long, long time. And I rode that wave and was the kind of young hotshot and, um, you know, had no conception of how wrong and how badly uh, it could be abused and, 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 um, and where that would lead to ultimately in the mortgage fiasco. So, um, and, you know, and social media um, and, and what's happened with Facebook is, probably, you know, exponentially more dangerous to human civilization. So we have to be humble and recognize that technologies are just tools and there needs to be a, a moral ethical framework. Uh, and I would argue a living systems economy framework that we use to, to harness and, and, and um, uh, put a guardrail around our, our use of technology, just because we invent something doesn't mean we necessarily should use it. Um, with that proviso, I do think that um, big data and artificial intelligence and obviously connected on the, uh, you know, the, the, the internet is a beautiful example of robust circulation, right? So that the internet as a tool is completely aligned with uh, my living systems principles. Uh, we not only circulate information, or sorry, energy and materials, but we now circulate information and increasingly um, empathy. You know, the circulation of photographs is kind of like moving from information to empathy. So there's, there's huge potential if we use these tools correctly. If we monetize them to try to sell us more stuff that we don't need, that's a disaster. And of course, or much less uh, monetize them to manipulate our elections, that's a disaster. So again, how we use the tools is critical. But if you go back to your question earlier about metrics, and if I'm right, or even roughly right, that we need to start measuring things that we don't yet even begin to capture in, the, in conventional uh, statistics, and that that data is much more granular than top-down things like employment and incomes, um, but it's much more granular. Like, you know, example I like to use is if I'm going to put a new driveway in my house, 
it matters whether I put down tar blacktop or gravel because one is good for the environment and one is bad for the environment. Well, how the hell are we gonna capture that level of granular data without um, some involvement of uh, big data, distributed data and artificial intelligence to make sense of what's, what's happening? So the challenge for the technologists in the world, in my opinion, is to first become literate in this idea of living systems and then the applications to understand how to measure both the ecological health of living systems and the implications of the human footprint on ecological systems is the biggest opportunity in the history of technology. Uh, and, and I'm not smart enough to know how to do that, but there are a lot of people working on that um, already. And uh, combining that with new monetary systems of exchange, new banking systems that encourage investment in the things we need and discourage investment in the things we don't need are, is the next 50 years of, of our life, I believe. And, um, and the biggest opportunity for the technologists um, in the history of, human, of humanity because the consequences and the implications are so profound. And so my hope is that the, that the computer science engineers work on these problems uh, rather than figuring out the next app that I don't need on my phone. Yeah, which I couldn't agree more, which basically we're saying that we need to join forces and, and share the same narrative that we all subscribe to so that we see that we're on one Earth and one universe, one planet. Absolutely. And I believe there's at least a, a significant uh, subset, if not a majority of young computer scientists who, if, if they, you know, they probably are more aware of this than our generation. And if they see an opportunity to work on it, um, they will they will jump at it. But right now, the opportunities are to go work in some of these behemoth tech companies, and um, you know, and figuring out how to write the next algorithm to get people to vote a different way or to get people to spend money that they don't need to spend. So it's it's again, you know, and same with Wall Street. They, they you know, we need people who want to go to work in finance to, to finance this transition rather than to figure out the best way to write an algorithm to speculate in the stock market on a nanosecond by nanosecond basis. So it's a massive misallocation of human talent and human genes. Wonderful. The sun has joined you again. And so, but we've come to the end uh, of the first part of this uh, <laughs> consultation. Thank you so very much for your extraordinary insights and uh, for sharing your wisdom with us. And uh, we'll be in touch. Well, it's a pleasure to be with you, and I look forward to the next chapter. Thank you. Have a wonderful day, John. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. For more on Dr. Bosazan and the investment turnaround, visit investment-turnaround.com.